Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Helm. We're at the teaching course here in New York City, and it's my pleasure and honor to have Dr. Salim Rezaei, the brains behind Rebel EM, the podcast, and the blog. And now I can proudly say one of my good buddies and co-foam producers, Salim, welcome to EM Cases. Anton, thank you for having me on. This is long overdue, and uh, that's one of the beauties of foam, isn't it, that we really become good friends. It's not just producing good content, but we know about each other, about our families and what's going on in our lives, and you're absolutely right when you say you can proudly say, and it's been a a pleasure to meet you. Awesome. So we're here to meducate. So, Salim, let's hear your best case ever. Yeah, so I was working a shift and had a patient come down to the ER, 38-year-old male. Said he really didn't have any medical problems and was kind of going about his ordinary business and had been doing well. Actually, had gone to the gym and exercised, doing fine, just his normal everyday routine. And all of a sudden, he was walking down some stairs and got this sudden onset chest pain. And he described the pain as sharp, like a knife stabbed him in the right side of his chest. He said he suddenly couldn't breathe, he couldn't catch his breath, he just felt fatigued, diaphoretic, just didn't feel right. Actually took him about 30 minutes to make it down the rest of the flight of stairs to make it somewhere where he could safely get to the emergency department. What were you thinking at that time about what the diagnosis was? Well, with the long travel, you know, flights to to the United States, probably about a 13-hour flight, stagnant. He said he he fell asleep, um, didn't really get up, stretched, nothing like that. And so, of course, we were thinking pulmonary embolism in this guy who otherwise had no other medical problems. Right. And in terms of uh, his vitals, what did he look like when he came into the ED? Yeah, so amazingly, he looked pretty comfortable. Uh, his color was good. Even though he said he felt diaphoretic, he wasn't diaphoretic. He wasn't cool or clammy. His heart rate was in the 90s. Um, his blood pressure was in the one teen systolic to 120s. His oxygen saturation was 95 96% on room air. He did have kind of a little bit of a low grade, not a fever, but a temp of 99.9. We do Fahrenheit in the U.S. I don't know if Canada is exactly the same if you guys do Celsius. You guys are old school. <laughs> And uh, his respiratory rate was a little fast. I I would say he was probably breathing 28, 30 times a minute. All right. So pretty much looked fine, had the story that was worrisome for a PE. So did you guys do the whole shebang, D-dimers, CTs? What what did you do with this guy? Yeah, and an otherwise young guy. I mean, so we work at an academic county institution. And so we decided to, let's just do the basic stuff. So we did a chest x-ray, which, of course, was completely normal. No abnormalities whatsoever. We did an EKG, which interestingly had an incomplete right bundle branch block. And we went back and talked to the patient. He said he'd never had an EKG done before. So he didn't know if that was normal And in my mind, of course, I'm thinking, is this evidence of right heart strain? Um, We went ahead and did a CBC, chemistry, blood work in terms of coags, 
And then because we're an academic institution, we said, you know what, let's just go ahead and send a D-dimer. Because if you actually applied a well score to this guy, he actually fell into the low-risk category. And if you follow that algorithm, he met criteria to actually do a D-dimer. So we went ahead and did all that. Okay. In terms of the perk score... Well, what was the perk score for him? Yeah, so his perk score was zero, and, and this is really a point of, of contention. It, you know, when you apply the perk score, it's in a patient that you consider very low risk. And I don't know that a flight 13 hours from Australia puts you in the very low risk category. I think for most clinicians, we'd probably be thinking PE in this patient. And so I didn't think perk was appropriate for him. But if you did apply it, and we did, it was perk negative. Yeah, I mean, we see so many patients who are young and healthy who come in with chest pain, and it seems like they're the ones that we do a ton of D-dimers on, and we end up going down this road where we're forced to do a CT when we don't really want to because of the radiation. Um, And then a lot of the patients that we miss are actually the older patients who might come in with some other respiratory problem or have COPD or something, and we don't even think of doing a D-dimer uh, we don't think about a PE even sometimes, or if we do do, do a D-dimer, then it's almost always going to be positive, so it doesn't really help us. So kind of what's your take on, you know, how we should be thinking about pretest probability of PE and whether or not we should do a D-dimer depending on age? Yeah, so I actually do, in the older patients, do an age-adjusted D-dimer. But in the younger patients, that's the ones we really care about, right? Those are the ones we don't want to radiate. We don't want to scan them if we can help it. But we also want to be appropriate in the test. And we don't want to minim- be minimalist because otherwise we're going to miss diagnoses, which we certainly don't want to do. In my opinion, and everyone practices a little bit differently, I think well score is probably one of the better risk stratification scores. There's studies that you know, tell us all the time that clinician gestalt is just as good as these, these risk scores. When you look at these kind of lower risk patients. Right. So in this case, the patient scored low by Wells, they were perk negative, but your gestalt was that this patient had a PE. There was something not right. It's not normal to be 38 years old, exercising every other day, every day, running all the time and having a respiratory rate of almost 30. Okay. So you sent off a D-dimer. What, what were the results? What happened next? So I think the most important thing here is, is what kind of D-dimer do you have at your institution? I think a lot of people don't know the answer to that question. And I think that's the, one of the most important things. We have one of the, the quantitative kind of sen- high sensitivity D-dimers. So for us, our cutoffs are 200 and 500. And what I mean by that is that the lab will flag it as abnormal if you have a value over 200. But that lab value is for patients who are in DIC. For VTE or venothromboembolism, our cutoff value is 500. And so this patient actually was 330, which is a diagnostic dilemma because it's indeterminate. Oh boy. Another indeterminate one you don't know what to do with. All right. So your gestalt is still high. Patient's low risk by Wells, perk negative. Now there's an indeterminate dimer. What happened next? So we we, uh, went back and talked to the patient and asked the patient what what they wanted. We explained the risk of radiation with CT scans, that they actually were kind of very low risk based on all these risk scores and that their D-dimer was indeterminate. And we kind of really put it in the patient's hand of whether they wanted the CT scan or not. And the patient was pretty adamant that something's not right. I, I don't know what's going on. I normally exercise all the time. I can't walk more than 10 feet. I'm having trouble breathing even just sitting here. 
So the patient decided for us or helped us decide with shared decision-making. They actually wanted the CT scan. So we went ahead and did a CTPE protocol. Mm. Did this particular patient have any background knowledge of emergency medicine or? So interestingly, and I'm sorry for the, to tell this to the listeners, I purposely kept some stuff a secret, but the patient was actually me. I had just gone to the Gold Coast for the SMAC conference and was working a shift as a hospitalist because I do emergency medicine and internal medicine. And I was literally going up the stairs and all of a sudden couldn't breathe. And within an hour and a half or two hours, I was down in the ER, checked in, and already had my CT scan. All right. So I'm on the edge of my seat. What did the CT show? So the CT scan actually showed bilateral subsegmental PEs with a pulmonary infarct on the right. Wow. So indeterminate D-dimer, low risk, healthy person, no risk factors except for a flight, which really isn't any of the, in any of the decision rules. And you had you had a subsegmental PE. Now, my understanding is that subsegmental PEs are kind of insignificant. Like there's actually controversy as to whether we should even be treating those patients or not. Yeah, I and that's kind of how you know Jeff Klein talks about this all the time about like you know, if you ultrasound them, there's no DVT and they have a sub subsegmental, that's probably not even really a PE and they can just not be treated. But I got to tell you, I know I'm an N of one, um, but I'm a very important N of one for myself, um, <laughs> as well as several of my family members. And I got to tell you that uh, even though I did decide to do anticoagulation, I was exercising four to five times a week. I was running three to five miles a, a day, and it took me a year to be able to start exercising again and be able to run even one or two miles. Wow. So that's some significant morbidity. You know, I think sometimes we forget about the potential morbidity that patients may have once they leave the emergency department. You know, so often we talk about evidence-based medicine in terms of what the mortality outcome is. And you hear things like, well, I'm not going to bother doing that because there's no mortality benefit. I think sometimes we forget about a potential morbidity benefit and I think this might be a good example of where there potentially could be a morbidity benefit. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I hear physicians, my residents, my colleagues, even other doctors at conferences, they talk about EBM, practicing evidence-based medicine. And it's an interesting phrase because everybody always talks about what the literature shows, what research shows. But if you actually look up evidence-based medicine, there's actually three components to it. It's highest value or best evidence research. It's the physician's kind of clinical gestalt and experience and patient values. And evidence-based medicine meets somewhere in the middle of all three of those. Right. So in, in your case, the gestalt was really high for PE, even though all the evidence-based stuff was negative. And then your particular values dictated that, yes, you wanted to be treated, even though this was a subsegmental PE. Because symptomatically, I wasn't able to exercise and do the th things that I do in everyday life. And I think oftentimes we forget that when we talk, there's not black and white in everything we do in medicine. There's a lot of gray. And I think some of that gray is what's important to the patient. And for me, being able to exercise and be able to walk around even and buy my own groceries and be able to work for my own livelihood, that's important stuff. Walter Himmel definitely agrees with what you're saying about EBM. We did a whole podcast on it, number 47, I think it was, episode 47. 
where Walter gave one of his brilliant talks at uh, the Emergency Medicine Update Conference at North York General in, in Toronto. So just to drive home that EBM is those three spheres rather than just the research, I do recommend our listeners to go back if they haven't already and listen to that episode. And one thing I want to be clear about also is that I'm not saying for every young person who comes in, you should go ahead and scan them, order a D-dimer on them. That's not what I'm saying at all, actually. And so I don't want people to take that as the take-home message. And there was a couple of very interesting things with my case, actually. So I was seen within two hours of my symptom onset. When you look at research, they don't really talk about within two hours or six hours or two days or three days when we're applying these scores, doing D-dimers even. And again, this is just, again, looking at the patient, taking the patient values and the actual case and time into your clinical decision-making. Yeah, so I guess it's a possibility in your case that the reason why the D-dimer was indeterminate was because you had got the D-dimer done within like an hour of your symptom onset. Maybe an hour. I'm pretty sure I had the IV stuck in my arm within 45 minutes of my symptoms. Right, okay. Yeah, so there's all these factors that aren't representative of these studies that we read. There's all these exclusion criteria that we have to think about when trying to apply the evidence to the patient in front of us. Absolutely. All right. So you were diagnosed with this PE. I understand that in the U.S. there's still some people who are admitting low-risk PE patients. Can you just tell our, our listeners what the published criteria are for discharging a patient with a pulmonary embolism? Right. You know, I'm not very good at memorizing criteria, actually, and so I like to make it even easier than that. I, I look at a few things. So number one I look for, is there any evidence of right heart strain? And if you look at my case specifically, I had that incomplete right bundle branch block on my EKG. I don't know if that's new or old. I've had subsequent EKGs, and I still have an incomplete right bundle branch block, so it's probably my baseline. I had a CT scan that showed no right ventricular dilatation. It just so happens that the director of ultrasound at our institution was working and did an echo on me right there. He also scanned me for DVTs, by the way. And I had no evidence of right ventricular strain there. They checked a BNP as well as a troponin on me, which were normal values. So well, I, you, had, you had like the royal treatment I, there. I literally had the red carpet rolled out for me. I don't know that we would have done that for, for most people who roll in, but... I hope not, a BNP. <laughs> All right. Um, and so there was no evidence of right heart strain. So if I see no evidence of right heart strain, that's, that's a good sign. Two, the second thing I look at is how does the patient clinically look? And although I had symptoms... I clinically didn't look bad. I had good color. I was able to walk around. I just was having some shortness of breath. I wasn't requiring narcotics for pain control. And if you look at the reasons people come back, it's usually because of pain. That's the number one reason because their pain's not well controlled. So that's also one of the criteria. And then the final thing that I look at to make sure a patient's safe to go home is what's their follow-up. I'm already plugged into the medical system. I have good insurance. I have a primary care doctor. I was able to follow up within 48 hours, actually, with the the chair of hematology, um, which how many people get that? And so those are kind of the four things I look at. Now, I realize that's not an exact criteria, and there are exact criteria that are listed out there. But I think if the patient meets those four things, they're probably safe to go home. Totally. So in, in Canada, we've pretty much adopted that low-risk patients can be safely sent home if they have good follow-up with pulmonary embolism. Uh, So uh, it's my hope, based on some good, strong literature out there, 
uh, and safety data that, you know, the rest of the world will kind of follow suit in, in that respect. And I think that'll be actually better for our patients uh, who get to go home and get back to their work faster and their family faster. Yeah. And again, it's patient values, right? I, I didn't want to be cooped up in a hospital on a heparin drip or even on Lovenox till my Coumadin level became therapeutic. I actually did Rivaroxaban because my lifestyle doesn't allow me to get Coumadin checks. And uh, I don't want to be cooped up in a hospital and I felt good enough to be able to go home. And so I think, again, that's a lot of times we just kind of reflexively say PE, they need to be admitted. And I don't think that's the case. And I think there's mounting evidence since even 2009, if you go back and look at it, that this is actually a safe strategy in your low risk patients. Great. All right. Well, Salim, thanks so much. That was a great personal best case ever. Hopefully that'll resonate with our listeners. Thank you for having me on the show. And you have to make me a promise. We have to get you on to Rebel Cast here sometime soon um, to do a critical appraisal of some literature. I'd love to, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Soon after we recorded this best case ever, the American College of Chess Physicians came out with their updated guidelines for the treatment of venous thromboembolism disease. And we'll have a link to the guidelines on the EM Cases website. Now, one of the key recommendations had to do with the treatment of isolated subsegmental pulmonary embolism, kind of like what Dr. Rizay had. They suggest that in patients with subsegmental PE who have no proximal DVT in the legs and have a low risk for recurrent clots, that clinical surveillance is recommended over anticoagulation. So that's for low-risk patients. Of course, for patients who are at high risk for recurrent clots, they suggest anticoagulation. So whether you treat or not depends on whether the patient is high or low risk for recurrent or progressive PE. Well, you might be asking, which patients are considered low risk? They say that patients who don't have any of the following list of risk factors should be considered low risk and therefore considered for clinical surveillance rather than anticoagulation. So here's the list. Ready? Patients who, one, are hospitalized or have reduced mobility for another reason, two, have active cancer, or three, have no reversible risk factor for venous thromboembolism, such as recurrent surgery. Now, they also suggest that patients with low cardiopulmonary reserve or marked symptoms that cannot be attributed to another diagnosis should also get anticoagulated. So according to these guidelines, Dr. Rizé probably should have been anticoagulated because he was very symptomatic, even though he's low risk in every other respect. Now, in case you're wondering what the explanation is for the recommendation, they say that true subsegmental PEs likely come from small DVTs, and so the risk of progressive or recurrent PE is very low. And also that many of these so-called subsegmental PEs are actually false positive overcalls by the radiologist. Now, they do admit that the evidence for their recommendations are not based on high-quality RCTs, but I think the take-home message is this. We don't have to anticoagulate every single patient with a PE. Now, before we wrap up this best case ever, I just want to let you know about a new free EM cases feature that'll help you with your EM learning. It's called EM cases Q&A Pearl of the Week. So here's the scoop. For all the 5,000 or so folks who have already signed up for the EM cases newsletter, you'll get an email with the first Q&A Pearl of the Week with a practice-changing 
practical pearl that'll take all of about 10 seconds to learn from. There'll be links to the original reference for all the EBM keeners out there, as well as a link to the EM Cases podcast that relates to that pearl. In the email, you'll also have the option of opting out of the ongoing pearls of the week that magically appear in your inbox. If you haven't already signed up for our newsletter that lets you know as soon as new EM cases, blogs, ebooks, podcasts, and courses are released, you can do so at emergencymedicinecases.com at the top of the homepage. And when you sign up for the newsletter, you can opt in for the Q&A Pearl of the Week as well. We're all about maximizing your learning experience with multimodal spaced repetitive goodies. And the Q&A Pearl of the Week is just another free feature to help make your synapses fire. So until next time, take it easy.